You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi, everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. And now on to our guest. Adrian Alexander has worked at AFS CME Council 31 since 2010 and currently serves as Director of Intergovernmental Affairs. She serves on the boards of the Catholic Labor Network and Arise Chicago, a nonprofit organization that works at the intersection of faith and workers' rights. Adrian is a graduate of Agnes Scott College, a small women's college in Georgia and earned a master's degree in public policy from the University of Minnesota. She lives in Chicago with her husband and two daughters, where they attend St. Benedict the African. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, Adrienne and I discuss her family's faith beginnings and how she got involved in politics, social justice, and the labor movement. We delve down into the nitty-gritty of labor negotiations and the mess of lobbying for justice. And we take a look at the labor issues of 2022, including the importance of protecting essential workers and immigrants who are most vulnerable to risk. Lastly, we explore how Adrian finds hope in the midst of messy politics. Enjoy! Adrian Alexander, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you. I'm really excited to hear your faith story and how you ended up becoming a person of faith who's involved in advocating for justice in the labor movement and for the rights of workers. How did you end up becoming Dree Alexander, <laughs> Catholic labor activist? So the story of my faith starts from the very beginning. Um, I am a cradle Catholic. As a Black Catholic, I think people are, and growing up in the South in particular, people are kind of surprised when you say you're Catholic. So my family became Catholic because my great-grandfather fought in World War I in the Army. He fought with the, in a segregated unit alongside the French, but um, when he got home into Kentucky, he couldn't find work. He had a hardwood floor business. It just was mad that he served his country and, and couldn't support his family. So the only folks that were willing to give him work were some nuns, I'm, I'm not sure which order, but gave him work redoing pews and um, some stuff at the church in Louisville. And he converted the family to Catholicism because of it. So my grandfather was in, I believe, second grade at that time. He's the oldest boy. And so he was very like serious about it. And he went to Catholic Colored High <laughs> in Louisville. 
Wow. There's a song about being good Negroes. It was their school song, but he was really very Catholic. And yeah, my dad was raised in a household that was Catholic. My, my grandma converted when she married him. They got married actually in the, the rectory because they couldn't get married in the church because she wasn't Catholic. Um, but they got married in the rectory of a church here in Chicago. So kind of full circle. So my dad grew up very like serious about his faith. My mom converted when they got married. And um, my dad actually worked for the Archdiocese of DC and the Archdiocese of Atlanta. Uh, he's a photographer and worked uh, for the Archdiocese newspaper. So growing up, I had an exposure to all different parts of the church. I would have to go be his assistant because he worked on the weekend a lot. But it was great because I just grew up knowing that Catholic was in the real sense of the word, uh, universal church and bigger than any narrow interpretation and grounded in Black Catholic parishes, St. Anthony uh, in the western of Atlanta and uh, St. Teresa of Avila in Anacostia, D.C. when we lived there for like six years. I am definitely grounded in Black Catholic tradition and like have pretty much exclusively attended Black Catholic parishes, but definitely had an exposure to not only different ways of practicing the faith and different like, you know, ethnic expressions of the faith, but also got to know different clergy and sisters. My my confirmation name is Claire because in DC for a while, they'd done a story on the poor Claire's and we would go every week to mass there before school. So we're really close to the poor Claire's that were in DC at that time. And that was really important to me and which is kind of like quite different from what you probably think of, um, you know, a labor, social justice, Catholic and an order of cloistered nuns, but it was really formative for me. So I really think that it's really a blessing Mm-hmm. to have had that exposure to so many parts of the church mm-hmm. um, and that that has helped me remember kind of what Catholicism is about even when there's been times that I haven't always felt necessarily aligns with kind of my vision of the world when sometimes you see one particular part of the church amplified it's always helped me I never really considered leaving because I knew that there's way more than any one group that may have the podium at the, at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I so relate because, you know, even though I'm obviously a white Catholic, I too have was very fortunate in my childhood to be exposed little by little to the broadness of Catholicism and experience what I feel like are the wide arms of what Catholic is And so when I'm like 
experience something narrow or something that's like, uh, you think that's what Catholic is, but there's so much more. It, it's really healthy to go back to that. And isn't that beautiful? And I, I'm not surprised to hear you say that you had connections with the four Claire's and you have a relationship with them, because even though I, I, you're so passionate about justice and activism, I, I know you have it as a contemplative spirit. And that's what I experienced <laughs> when I'm around you. So that's, that's funny. Yeah, yeah I I remember once I was in D.C. for a Pax Christi conference and uh, I went back to visit them and mm. I was talking to them about some conversation I had. And so like I didn't even quite realize their politics because I'd known them as kids and uh, as mm. when we were kids and, you know, just that that wasn't a factor and I was talking to them about some stuff and they were like oh we're gonna pray for you <laughs> um but yeah it's, it's it was kind of funny <laughs> it's like oh right like that is that is a choice that you're making in a particular way and it could maybe align with some pol- politics that are perhaps quite different than mine, but it, but it was great. And we had good conversation about it. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get involved in politics then and labor? So that I attribute to my mom. My mom was a lobbyist just like me, actually. I used to tease her because she worked uh, for a corporation. And so I knew that it was an option that lobbying was a career because most people are like, like what you do, what, how do you even get into this? And there's like no clear path. There are a million different ways for every lobbyist you could talk to. My mom happened to be one. So I knew that it it was a path that existed. She worked in, she had numerous states that she was responsible for. And I said, like, I want to do what you do, but for good is how I would would tease her. Um, But it's also her family that had the strongest ties to labor. My grandfather on my dad's side was uh, worked at the post office. um, So he had a union too, but it's really my mom's parents, their story that where they really connected to the labor movement. So clearly my grandparents on my mom's side are from very rural Arkansas. And some of my grandmother's and grandfather's siblings had already moved up to Michigan. Great migration. Almost all the men worked in the car factory. All the women worked at the hospital or were teachers. So for my grandparents, my grandfather worked at GM, put on doors on the assembly line. My grandmother worked at the hospital and dietary, and she was a SEIU steward. But I really recall very vividly my grandfather telling me, one, he remembered everything, like very minute details. So he could tell you, you know, this year, so-and-so was president. The cost of bread was this. The cost of gas was this. And we got a contract where I was paid this much money and I had to pay this much in taxes. So he was like very clear. The other thing he was very clear on, in addition to like what he got each contract was he said the union gave him dignity. Mm. And It wasn't until I was older that I really appreciated the gravity of that statement, but he moved from the very small town they were from to Little Rock, Arkansas, and the best job that he could get there was shining shoes in a hotel. 
And you can imagine how a Black man in that era was treated as someone who shines shoes. But then to go from Little Rock to Flint and to have a job where you worked with all types of folks, where you each had a job, you did it, you each got paid the same because you were in the union, uh, and you each had a path uh, to get raises, to um, talk if there was a grievance, um, you know, to ensure that there was justice and how you were each dealt with. And that is just an incredible change. And it meant that my mom could go to college. You know, it, it changed the trajectory of their entire family. And that was because they both held union jobs. Wow. So, so it was very clear to me. I weighed what I wanted to do. Um, but ultimately, I thought I could help the most people if I did lobbying that had to do with labor, because the more folks that get into good jobs, the more families that could be supported, the more folks that will have educational opportunities, the better we will all be. <laughs> so, and I felt that the job was really key to having that ripple effect for everyone. Mm. What I hear there, which I think is beautiful, is just like your love for the church is this really broad view. You, in your work, have a long view and you have a great hope for what's possible, the potential of of systemic change. And these little little small things is just that that you're working for in the labor movement are actually going to impact generations to follow. Yeah, and definitely emphasis on little small changes, like little by little. I mean, you have to think like labor, the church, you're part of something bigger, right? But I have like such a narrow focus and like I work for one union in Illinois. We only cover the state of Illinois. I work on city of Chicago, Cook County and state of Illinois stuff. I'm luckily not having to deal with federal stuff really, but little by little, you can make a difference in people's lives. We had one budget this year in the city of Chicago where we were really pushing for federal money to be invested in mental health, for example, and we were able to make some big investments there. And it's like, okay, great. Now some more people in the city of Chicago will hopefully have access to public mental health services. And there'll be a few more jobs in the city of Chicago that are going to provide that service. So a few more families that'll have union jobs and benefits, wages and benefits, and some more services as a result. And that was like after 10 years ago, hmm. the, the clinics were, you know, ha- halved, right? So you have those setbacks and then you work for 10 years, organized for 10 years, and then, you know, a little win. Just um, like said it. Yeah. Get it back where it was not even right. where it should be yet. Right. But I play a lot of defense in my job, but it is incredibly rewarding um, when you do have those uh, wins and it, you know, steals you for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's go uh, big picture for a little bit here. I, I I do want to hear more about the details of your work, but 
first, let's put it in context for for the listeners who might not ever think about how labor connects to faith. And I mean, you and I are well aware that one of the principles of Catholic social teaching is the dignity of work and workers. But um, not all our listeners might know why and what the background of that is. So can you just kind of break that open for us? Why why is this part of our faith? Yeah, uh, to me, it, it goes back to the idea that we believe that there's not not just dignity in every worker and every everybody has a contribution to make to this world, uh, just respect for every single person. It's like really just fundamental to both the labor movement and the church. I, I say often when I'm talking about the intersection between these two, that solidarity is something that's kind of countercultural, especially in American individualistic society, when everybody's just trying to personally get ahead. But you have the church and union saying, no, this is about all of us and the common good and all collective, uh, how we're advancing. Uh, so to me, it's, um, it's just natural that, that those two things kind of share those principles about um, every single person uh, being connected and wanting to lift up every single person. Um, and just they're, they're not being the individual, but us all being in this together. Mm, amen. And you know, I'm also thinking about the letter, the economic letter, I think that was written you might know the facts better. Economic justice for all that was written. Oh, okay. I, I was going. I was going to take it back even further to Rerum Navarum, but yeah, no. Let's but, talk about Rerum Navarum first. Well, I was just going to say that, like, there is. I mean, there's multiple things going back. If you want to, if you want to look at like what's written about the the church and labor, I think it's kind of funny though. I feel like what's written there's always like these caveats it's like unions are good and also like don't let them get too crazy uh or don't <laughs> let them go off to who knows what they might do that's like they're an institution just like the church is an institution mm-hmm. you want to talk about the messy like it's also about like well we wouldn't want unions coming to church <laughs> church places telling us how to treat our workers and that's also often a point of contention right Everyone knows it's a big undertaking to try and organize uh, religious organizations, but I think that more and more there is attention being paid to like how how it's the church as an employer itself. Yeah, you know that's really messy stuff, especially because I think back to when I was teaching high school and you know in Catholic schools and and I would. Re- teaching about Catholic social teaching, when we get to this principle, I would emphasize this means you have the right to be in a union. This means you have the right to have a strike. This means you have the right to advocate for for safe working conditions. The church cares about these things because work matters and you matter. And, you know, and just really trying to help my students hear that, which I, I mean, that is actually the teaching, but you're bringing up a fair point that the church, even though it promotes certain teachings, itself as an institution is imperfect at living them out. Every institution is imperfect. I mean, there yeah. is a, there's an, it's not like a lot of unions have staff unions because mm. at some point they were imperfect too, right? Mm. Um, but I, I think it is important to recognize that it should extend, um, you know, because people work for a church, 
a union, a nonprofit with a good mission doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to, you know, support their family, have paid sick leave, paid uh, parental leave, those types of things. I remember being shocked, like maybe it was 10 years ago, maybe not even when the archdiocese announced that they were having a new parental leave policy that gave people leave for the first time. It's like, oh, like you're a male dominated institution and you didn't like think about that. But what does it mean for like, if you want younger women in their earlier careers to make a career out of working for the church, like you should be uh, the employer that you will like model. Like if you're pro-family like what does that mean as a Mm. result Mm. yeah yeah it reminds me of a decision that my own congregational leadership team did uh, made this past year through their investments our our congregation has been we've been doing some advocacy um the franciscan sisters of perpetual adoration that the minimum wage would be 15 dollars an hour for all the different businesses that we invest in and then we realized that not all of our own employees have that minimum wage and wow. so like okay this doesn't make sense we can't be <laughs> advocating for this if we're paying people less than 15 dollars an hour so it was just immediate like the next mm-hmm. month the 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 wages changed and suddenly we had a 15 dollar an hour a minimum. And wouldn't you know, Business Insider, of course, like picked up that story because they're like, look what these nuns did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, anyway, the thing that I was going to say b- before about economic justice for all that I think is an important theme for us to highlight here is that the church and I mean, really Christian discipleship and Christian principles and, you know, the teachings of Jesus really emphasize people over profit. And yeah people matter more than money at all times, (laughs) right? And scripture warns us of that again and again, how dangerous it can be if we're concerned more with money than we are with caring for people and truly loving our neighbor, loving the worker. What have you discovered in your work in advocating for these changes and, and, you know, entering into the dialogue with government, with corporations and, and employers about how the politics can complicate focusing on the values that matter. So I work for a public sector union. Everything we asked for cost money, like, you know, it's taxpayer money. And the question is always like, yeah, we would love to pay people that work with folks who have disabilities more, but where would we get that money from? Like people don't want to pay more taxes. So we have a limited pie that we can choose from. So there's, there's constantly that tension. So I view my job as trying to uh, explain to people what your taxes pay for, what services they provide, because nameless, faceless bureaucrat is like what people think, right? And then if you're explaining to folks, you have a family member with a developmental disability, they live in a home, this is a person that takes care of your family member. Do you want them to have a living wage? 
then that's an incredibly compelling story. You want the person who's caring for your family member to be a consistent person. Um, You'd rather them not be turning over every couple of months, which is what ends up happening when you don't pay a decent wage for really hard work, right? So that's those are the stories that I have to lift up those that's the work that I have to do constantly because I think that a lot of times people want to do the right thing and want to find a way to provide services for the most vulnerable but oftentimes it's not framed in a way that's compelling to them or they don't feel like the general public knows what they're getting for their tax dollars and so they're hesitant about doing it. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. So is it a lot of like reframing or helping people to open their imagination to to potential yeah, that's some of it. And I, and when I say that I do a lot of defense, it's like a lot of it is like, well, what if we can take from here to pay for this? That's like more compelling right now. And, it, and it's like having to explain, okay, but if you take this money from here, here's what it means to, to not pay for this, or here's what that means in practice. Um, because government itself is like so big and there's so many things that people do it's mainly like informing people of like kind of a lot of time like what what it means Mm. when you're investing in this particular department versus like cutting really because that's where the pressure comes from to cut because ideas like oh there's there's too much waste. And it's like, well, what does that mean? You know, well, like, let's take money from here. This doesn't sound good. Mm. Well, okay. This is what this means. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So helping people to really see the implications of their choices and how they impact others. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if you knew this, but, um, the right after I graduated for college, I interned with Iowa Catholic Conference in Des Moines for a semester. I think you mentioned that once to me. Yeah. That's- so I got to do the lobbyist thing at the state house, which, yeah. So it, it helps me imagine what your work is like. And part of what was so fun for me was when we were working on a certain bill and we were working on clean energy. We were working on immigration bills. We were working on stuff that impacted the church, like laws about That's cemeteries. Really cool. Yeah. that you were able to, to get a wide variety of stuff because not all of them do. Right, right. Yeah. And I had the really fun job of every day I would go pick up the bill packet and I would have to sort through which ones impact the church or church properties or which ones impact or, or ministries and which ones are connected to Catholic social teaching in some way, which usually was like half of the bills <laughs> that, yeah. we, that we'd had to track. Yeah. 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 So it was great. The thing that was the most fun, which I imagine you do did pre COVID at the state house is, uh, bringing in people to tell their stories to the lawmakers. Yeah. 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 I did the DC thing for just a little bit. I was there at a very fun time, um, during healthcare reform, uh, in 09. And I worked for AFL CIO that summer and with their healthcare lobbyists. So it was like, the biggest thing that was happening on the Hill Mm. in a, you know, important organization and that had a really vested interest in the bill. And it was like, this is the DC life. And 
I was glad I had that experience, but I came away from it. Like I talked to one union member that summer who got my extension by mistake, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but like, obviously what I was doing had a big, big impact on many people's lives, Hmm. but I didn't talk to anybody or didn't have any interaction with any of those people. Hmm. So um, I was really glad to come back and work on the state and local level. Mm-hmm. because I have very, like, I have a lot of interaction with the members that are impacted by the work that I do. I know their stories. I know the leaders. I can connect those leaders to the politicians. Um, we have lobby days where I get to talk to people and it keeps you grounded. It, it makes me better at my job because I know I work on criminal justice stuff. So like I have been to prisons and like actually get to see and understand at a different level Mm. than if it was just like I read on paper someone gave me some talking points and like it's just better for everybody that when you get to have that on the ground experience um so that's why I like working at the state and local level um as opposed to DC though we need good lobbyists in DC as well (laughs) certainly certainly yeah yeah and thank god for the lobbyists who are interested in the people and that's what where their focus where their gaze is and again people over profit (laughs) Dree I would love to hear how discipleship uh connects to all this for you and what discipleship means what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus I feel like more and more my Catholic identity has kind of been at the forefront in that I've been involved in more Catholic organizations. Even when I was younger, I was on the board of um, Pax Christi, and now I'm on the board of the Catholic Labor Network. But just, I feel like as I've gotten older, more and more people around me have like kind of left their faith behind or don't make culturally identify as Catholic but don't um, practice. And so it's kind of like last folks standing. (laughs) And so I'm not just the only practicing Catholic, a lot of people know uh, of my like cohort, but maybe the only person that practices any faith. So to me, I feel like wearing my faith on my sleeve, it wasn't so much a a choice or like an idea that I was going to be, you know, every day I'm going to go put on the armor and be a disciple for Jesus. And that's like, you know, when people see me, they'll know it wasn't a, it wasn't a active decision in that way, but. So are you saying (laughs) that back, like in high school, you were not, um, toting the Jesus, uh, like the Jesus fish on your backpack and you had the WWJD bracelet. I I was not. And it's like, I mean, I was the same person. I still went to church every week. There's really, um, not been a point where I haven't gone to church, but it's just, well, when I lived in the South, more people went to church. So that that's part of it. Like it was different because I was Catholic and maybe people weren't really as familiar with that, but there was a lot more religious people. So I guess part of it is like that cultural phenomena of like moving out of the South where religion is more a part of the ethos. Mm -hmm. But I guess it's also been like, well, I still, it's no secret that like 
I'm not available. I'm at church, you know, or like we can do that, but we're, we have to be done by this time because I have to do Bible study or whatever. There's just, it's, and it's never been like, oh, we have a family commitment. It's just been like, oh, we, we go to church. So more and more has been like, I'm that friend that people are like, oh, you know, like ask her, she goes to church or, or something <laughs> like that. Huh. So in a way, discipleship, I feel like it's, it's something that I've kind of like fallen into, like that more and more it's been like, oh, this is kind of a unique position that I occupy in this, in my cohort. And I, I want to be clear, like, I think there's plenty of people even in labor in Chicago mm-hmm. that are older than me. There's plenty of them that I know go to church and um, that like, that's like, I feel like Catholic labor, Catholic politics, there's, there's, that's a thing in Chicago, <laughs> but I, I do think it is, has to do with my age in part. And so the idea that I am public about that, that I tweet about church stuff or, you know, has become its own form of discipleship in that I'm, I don't hide that aspect of me. I'd say the other part of the cohort is not the labor politics, but progressive politics. There's not a lot of religious people or practicing religious folks in that kind of circle too. Um, And so discipleship has ended up being that I bring my whole self to those conversations, to those spaces, even when it's Catholic labor is kind of on display where at endorsement sessions, people are like, oh, what parish did you grow up in? But may not ask a Black person that because they're not thinking about like Southside Irish, those are the connections that they have. And and it's like, oh no, you know, I grew up or I go to this parish or do you go to this parish or not? Or like, you know, it's like, you know, it didn't, it doesn't occur to people that I, I might be part of their world in that sense. Um, and just reminding people like, hi, I'm here. Like you may not see me initially, but as in the same way, but I am here. So that's a, a convoluted answer. But I think in all the spaces that I'm in, because like the church, um, you're the power spheres of the church labor is white male dominated, the, the power spheres, you know, like not, I mean, rank and file labor is the growing parts are uh, women, women of color, but still when you go into the rooms that I'm in of like the political folks um, and labor unions, it doesn't, it doesn't look like that yet. And I am very intentional about being myself in those rooms. I'm very intentional about being myself when I'm in Springfield. And in the same way, I'm very intentional about being myself when I'm in church spaces and reminding folks that like, you know, that may be your experience, but as someone who's grown up in a Black Catholic church, like, let me tell you, we appreciate our homily and it's okay if it's more than five minutes. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You Right. So, um, Amen. so yeah, it's just like in all those spaces, reminding people that it can be discipleship and like 
what my idea of what Jesus teachings and all of that is like has value and um, my experience may be different than yours, but same Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Yeah. So it sounds like for you, discipleship and following Jesus, being devoted to your faith is really just about being authentic, no matter where you are. Like you show up and, and you are totally yourself and offering the gift of yourself as, as a way to serve others and work for systemic change. It's beautiful. Well, thank you for summing it up. Now, if somebody asks me again, I'll, I'll take that. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) What are some of the things that we need to keep in mind when it comes to labor movements and labor rights? What are the big things that are being worked on and how can those of us who are not part of unions, but want to be in solidarity with others, partner with you and support you in this work? Yeah, I think it's still really important to think about the folks, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the great resignation and what the future of work looks like. And I think it's really important to remember the folks that have continued to work throughout the pandemic, the folks that are still reliant on the service sector and how things have changed for them, the small businesses who's employees may not be treated the best, the food uh, workers, folks all throughout food production, the farm workers, the truckers who make sure that it gets places, all those folks, we should be thinking about them because they've they've continued to work throughout. And um, I think it's really important that we pay attention to their concerns uh, on the job. And vulnerable workers like immigrant workers in meatpacking factories, for example, that were the brunt of coronavirus when it spread initially and continue to be vulnerable as immigrant workers. So, and farm workers are often in similar position. Uh, so I don't want to forget in kind of, as we think about the future of work and mm. how to move forward, that, that there are so many people that their situation kind of remains vulnerable and the same. I'd also say that as legislators are like going back and think about your Catholic conference and what they're doing and um, ways that you can get involved in your Catholic conference, ways you can push the Catholic conference to have like a broad sense of what issues impact Catholics, because um, not not all of them had uh, that experience that you had in Iowa. Um, So I think that that's really important that there's not like just one narrow sense of what it means to be Catholic. And I think that's important for lawmakers to see mm-hmm. um, and understand too, that the issues that impact Catholics are multitudes and that it shouldn't be easy mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to, to say, you know, I'm good with the Catholic conference because there are so many demands that the Catholics should be making in terms of minimum wage, paid sick leave, immigration, um, you know, the whole, the whole life, whole range of issues. For non-Catholic listeners, do most denominations and do most faith communities have lobbyists at their state houses that they should, they could be connecting with? There's a lot of faith-based organizations, usually 
the ones that I'm most familiar with are through the Gamaliel Network that have organizations or faith coalitions that may have lobbyists or opportunities for members to get involved in the state capital. So definitely, I think Gamaliel is like, I know Isaiah, Micah are two different state organizations that they have here. I think it's, it's a faith coalition in Illinois, mm-hmm. um, but that involves people of all kinds of traditions advocating for the greater common good. Definitely look into that because I, I do think it is, I think it's valuable and and really effective when folks gather from all across the state with faith bringing them together to make a moral argument for for things that are really important and people don't get involved in this in the city of Chicago for example I mean people are more more likely to call their alderman their city council member than anybody else they're more likely to know their name and unfortunately the state legislators kind of slide under the radar Mm. and you know there's so much that happens at the state level in terms of funding in terms of policy that's set Uh, so it's just really important to know what's going on with your state legislature and I found that they're pretty responsive um, if people are getting engaged uh, just because a lot of people don't so especially if it's not one of the mega issues, you can really have an outsized say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I have one last question for you and to, mm-hmm. to tie this all together. I mean, we've talked about your faith story. We've talked about how important it is for you to be you, no matter where you are and no matter what sort of assumptions people might be projecting upon you and, and how that is part of, of living out your faith. And the, some of the nitty gritty and the messiness of politics and systemic change and how the labor movement connects to faith. I'm, I'm wondering for you, when you think about the messiness of all this, what is the thing that helps you to maintain momentum and hope? And where is it so messy that sometimes you're like, ah, I just really need the support of others? Hope is my daughters in our parish in the folks that I see on Twitter that are taking on the idea that they can't be Catholic and queer, that they can't be Catholic and feminist, that they can't be Catholic and, you know, traditional and believe that you know, the church should be flung wide open. All those various expressions of the faith give me hope. And that there's so many Catholic folks out there leading by their faith, doing incredible work in their own, you know, ways and all the different ways that they do work out there in the world. Like, I I just feel like I see, see folks in Kentucky and at the border and in uh, Maine and Montana and on Twitter. And it's like, wow, that's really great that you're out there fighting for Medicaid expansion or doing work with migrants. And we're all connected. That gives me hope. But I go to church every week and most of the people I go to church with have no 
opinion whatsoever on the Eucharistic document, don't know that the bishops were meeting. And like, I get caught up in the politics of the church, just like I get caught up in the politics mm. of the world. But I go to church every week and uh, I'm just glad to get a good word and to hear some good music and to like refocus on the gospel because that's what it's about. So there's hope abound, but is it hard when I think about my friends who I think would be Catholic if they felt like they could be queer and have a home in the church? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a number of people close to me that I feel like we could get them back just if they felt more people were welcoming. Yeah, that makes me sad, but Mm. I do feel like there's a lot of place to find hope too. There's hope like right now for me, I feel like there's hope in Pope Francis and to, to know that like the very top of our hierarchy that that exists, even if it doesn't filter down all the time in all the ways, it's nice that there's someone there who's given hope. Amen. Oh, Dree, thank you so much for coming on Messy Jesus Business. It's been so lovely to reflect with you on your work and hear your story. Appreciate you. I invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. Let us pray together for workers and for the rights of workers, for the protection of the dignity of work. As the sun rises to bring in the new day, we remember those who descend into the earth. Their work begins in darkness, pulling from the earth the resources we steward. We remember those who work inside a building away from the light and brightness of the day. We remember those who work outside in the harsh elements of our world, the bitter cold and sweltering heat of extremes. We remember those who do not have a job to go to, who are struggling to meet the needs of their daily living expenses, for whom the day becomes long and arduous. As the sun sets to bring in the evening of rest, we remember those who work in the night. We remember those who are trying to recover from their labor and toils of the day. We remember those who participate in unsafe and dangerous work. We pray for a renewed sense of dignity in their lives and in their work. God, in your goodness, you have made a home for the worker. Make a place in our hearts for compassion to the men and women who labor tirelessly for basic necessities. Ensure a place for the men and women who are struggling to find work. Grant us your wisdom to greet and care for those who are unable to work due to illness or circumstances that prevent their participation. Be with the children who are not able to run and play, but instead must put in a hard 
day's work to help their family to afford to eat, to live. Be with us all, Christ Jesus, as we go about the busyness of our work. Hold us accountable, not only for our actions, but most importantly, to each of our neighbors. May we continue to work together to bring about your reign of peace and justice. We ask this in your holy name, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.